the Fail On Podcast, episode 004. And people can, you know, sniff out people doing this as a gimmick. If you're just wanting to get on the bandwagon, it won't work well for you. But if you believe in the mission and use your business as the vehicle, people can sense that. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hello and welcome to the podcast that believes if you desire to create the life of your dreams, then embracing failure by taking urgent and bold action is the only way. Today, you and I get to learn from none other than Cole Hatter, an entrepreneur, investor, speaker, philanthropist, and creator of Thrive, Make Money Matter. Today, I'll be talking to Cole about losing his two best friends within 64 days of each other in separate tragic accidents and how he honors them. How to start a business with no idea, no money, and no idea on how to get started. How partnering with Ty Lopez generated $1.8 million in just 30 days. And how to approach setbacks and failures so they motivate you rather than define you. And much, much more. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com, F-A-I-L-O-N.com. Without further ado, Mr. Cole Hatter. All right. We are here at Koto de Casa Country Club, kind of sitting in Cole Hatter's backyard. Actually, we're more on more along the lines of the, what hole is this? This is the third hole on the south course. It is a par five. And we actually have a couple golfers right in front of us. One guy's hitting out of the woods right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Which anyways. is a good metaphor to take into the conversation <laughs> we're going to have of failing on, right? Yeah, exactly. he's, he's, he's not calling a mulligan. He is uh, deep yeah. in the woods right now. <laughs> so, as you can probably gather, I'm sitting here with Cole Hatter. And I would just like to welcome you, Cole, to the Fail On Podcast. Thanks for having me, man. You got it. So obviously this is a pretty casual episode and I try to keep most of my episodes pretty casual, but we were either going to, just to get a little context, we're in Orange County, California. What is this? South South Orange County? Yeah, this is Southern Orange County. Yeah. Okay. And Coto de Casa is a community country club, racket club type place. Yep. And yeah, we're literally sitting on the third hole right beside a sand trap, seeing a couple guys hitting away. It's a beautiful backdrop. We'll actually take a picture, see so you have some context and can can see what we're seeing. Anyways, let's get right into it, man. And again, thanks for coming on and, and hosting me. Appreciate yeah, it. This is by far the best podcast scene <laughs> I've ever had. Well, you don't have to just say scene. You can say the best podcast, yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're, we're one minute in and you're already <laughs> the best. But no, I mean, we're like 40 feet from my house, but still, this is this is rad. I'm normally looking at this through my office window, yeah. podcasting, you know, using my, my equipment in my house, but your on-the-go gear is Pretty fantastic. Yep, yep. Only thing we're missing is is a beer. I know. I can't <laughs> believe I was out. I'm going to text my <laughs> wife right now, and it'll show up during this episode. <laughs> well, that'd be amazing. Just watch. Service from For the, the listeners, course. it'll happen in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> All right. So I'll let you text that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can could, I could multitask. Oh, you're a multitasker. Okay. So I do want to just 
you know, for to give the listener a little context and background about you and your story, how did you get into entrepreneurship? You know, were you always an entrepreneur? And what kind of take us along that journey getting started? So, yeah, there's that always an entrepreneur, which I always, I don't want to say struggle with, but I think that they're, because I don't want to say for somebody who maybe is in their 30s or 40s and has never done anything entrepreneurial to yeah. count themselves out and oh, say, sure. oh, I guess I'm not. But I was one of those stories where you feel like you've just been called to it, if that makes sense. And so, you know, for the listeners, whether you've ever done anything entrepreneurial or not, we all can be if we choose to be and follow the correct course. But I was one of those kids that was, I don't know, seven or eight years old. Christmas was coming and I wanted to buy gifts for my family. Mm. And like most seven or eight year olds, mom or dad front the bill. And I said that I wanted to do it on my own. And so I distinctly remember we were in a mall, a shopping mall here in Orange County, and they were selling mistletoe. And I was like, dude, this stuff grows for free right next to my parents' <laughs> house because yeah. you know, I was eight years old. I climbed trees all day long. So I went back and I started pulling mistletoe out of the trees that lived near us and got some red bows and went door to door and sold, you know, one for three dollars, two for five, and <laughs> literally sold hundreds of dollars worth of mistletoe at like eight years old. So did you actually have the idea or thought that this stuff grows for free, or did like yeah. somebody say that to no, no, you? No, 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 no. I, I so was, you had the you had enough awareness to realize that. I literally will never forget the moment where it like clicked, where I said they're selling this for money, and I know I can get it for free. And so maybe that was the moment that entrepreneurial spark happened. And then at the end of going door to door, right, you know, this little eight-year-old boy is like, hey, you want mistletoe? And it was weeks before Christmas, so my clothes ratio was pretty insane. <laughs> I came back after making a few laps in the cul-de-sac with enough money to, you know, buy everybody in my family presents. Hey, this and is the easiest thing in the world. Exactly. It was like printing money. And so <laughs> that, you know, puts a little seed in my mind that fast forward into my adult life. Mm. You know, I think that's where the entrepreneurial endeavors began. And so... You know, the question was, have I always felt or been an entrepreneur? And I guess, I guess to a degree, yes. Mm. So did you go to college, traditional college? Sort of. So I decided in about junior high school that I want to be a firefighter. God's put on my heart to want to help people. And so I looked at a career where I could help people and be compensated for it. So like being a doctor, being a police officer and, you know, playing with fire and saving lives and getting paid for it was a good fit for me. So in high school, I would go to high school during the day college at nights and weekends to take care of all my prerequisites. So I took care of my EMT certificate and a lot of my firefighter certificates while still in high school. Good grades or bad grades? Actually, I got better grades in the college than I did in high school because it was subjects that interested me. So I'm one of those guys where, you know, I'm not I'm not a dummy. I can learn, but it's really hard for me to learn if it's you know, if you don't care about it, French poetry from the 16th <laughs> century. But when it's, you know, on the weekends and at night firefighting, I actually did very, very well. I aced everything because I found that actually fascinating. And so when I graduated high school, I went right into the, the fire department. So I did do some college enough that, you know, I got my firefighter certificates, my EMT, and then all of my prerequisites to go to paramedic school taken care of. But I didn't do any general ed type stuff. So I don't have a degree did do some college, not a college dropout. I did what I needed to do and I moved on, but no degree either. Got it. Went straight into firefighting. And then, and just for context, how old were you at this point? Where were 19, you? 19, Seattle, Washington. So here in Southern California, it was very competitive to become a firefighter. So moved up to Seattle, Washington. And did you know anybody up there? Yeah, my sister and her husband lived in Seattle, Washington. And so that was my only connection. Literally two people in the whole state went up there and again, started life, made friends. All that good stuff. Got it. 
And where did it go from there? That's what I thought I was going to do my whole life. I'd put in my 30 years. I'd retire full pension benefits. You know, that's one of the perks of firefighting is that they have fantastic retirement options. Two years into that career at 21 years old, got in a really bad car accident where I was ejected out of the car. They estimated going around 80 miles an hour. And so hit the pavement at a tremendous amount of speed. It got very hurt to the point where they actually had to fly me in a helicopter to the hospital. They didn't think I would survive in an ambulance. Not work-related at all, right? No, no, no. This okay. was this was just with yeah. friends. Yeah, this was not a work-related injury. And so, yeah, I got in that really bad car accident. And long story short, almost you know, didn't make it. Did survive. Obviously, here I am. But was in a wheelchair for a while. I had to learn how to walk again. I had a traumatic brain injury. So my brain was real foggy for a while. I had to learn how to learn again. And so it was, it was a pretty crippling accident. And Although it looked like I'd have a strong recovery, how long and how much of recovery, you know, 80%, 100% was uncertain. And so for sure, firefighting was out for the time. You can't be a firefighter if you can't walk. And so, you know, as I was getting out of my wheelchair and onto a, a walker and then crutches and then eventually a cane, it, you know, it looked like firefighting could someday be an option again. I would have had to, you know, gone through all the physical exams and all of that. And But bottom line is in that downtime is when I started my first business and, you know, I guess that wouldn't necessarily, to the theme of the show, call that a fail out of firefighting, but it was a door that closed, and I allowed another door to open. Instead of being a victim of feeling sorry for myself, I said, okay, you know, this is what I've spent my life working towards, which was only a few years at that time, 21. This is what I plan on doing the rest of my life. It's now out. What am I going to let that mean to me? What am I going to do with the options I have? I mean, I had to move back with my parents. Like, I'm briefly talking about this accident, but it was really bad. I had to be... How, how long were you not walking? Two months in a wheelchair and then about a full year of cane crutches rehabbing to where I was walking like you wouldn't know. So this was wasn't wrong. like a broken leg. You're back up and running in a, six weeks. No, yeah, no. This was for me to... For you to not notice something's wrong, like I had a limp or I'm using a like cane, it was about a year until I looked like I do now. And so, you know, again, not letting that metaphorically cripple me, although my body was broken. But you one, know. one more question on this point, because I'm, I'm really curious, actually. So obviously you said one door closed, another one open, but did you have like that perspective right out of the gate from when this injury happened and you're, you know, you're in a wheelchair yeah, or no. did it take a little while for this, for this all to like digest and settle? Yeah. So, so that's a bit of a can of worms. There were three of us in the car accident. My best friend in the world, like a brother to me, if he was sitting here now, I'd introduce him as my brother because we grew up together. We took him in and made him our own family. And so Steve, he was driving. Matt, our other best friend, the passenger, was was in the passenger seat. And, you know, the result of that accident was Steve didn't survive. And so that was not only did I lose my career temporarily, at least, firefighting and had my physical injuries. You know, I lost the most important person to me in my life. And so immediately following that accident was a very ugly season of grief of losing Steve and guilt that for some reason I made it and he didn't because he also was ejected. He was in the helicopter with me. I was unconscious. I don't, I don't know any of this, but, but he got airlifted in the helicopter with me. We went into the, you know, emergency room together and I came out and he didn't. And so I had this weird place of, of guilt of how come he was as hurt as I was. You know, he had brain injury. I had brain injury. He didn't ever wake up. He passed and I, here I am. So the other survivor of the accident, Matt, he and I got extremely close in a way that is hard to explain because he also survived that accident. So he understood what it felt to survive, almost die, and lose Steve, and then the guilt of how come he and I were here and Steve wasn't. And so 64 days later, we went dirt biking. I had just gotten out of a wheelchair right at the two-month mark, 
and to celebrate and to try to help me get out of my depression, Matt was like, hey, dude, let's go ride dirt bikes. And I'm like, bro, I can't even walk. Yeah. He's like, that's the point. You sit down on dirt bikes. <laughs> he just was trying desperately to help me because he knew that, of course, he was devastated, but like I wasn't doing well. And so he wanted to try his best to get his best friend back into the swing of life. So he packed up the dirt bikes. We went out to the desert. And again, another long story cut short. While Matt and I and our buddy Scott came with us, we're riding dirt bikes. Matt and I fell into a mine shaft, the same Matt that was just in the car accident with me. And so we fell into the mine shaft and I made it out and he didn't. He didn't survive. So in a 64-day period as a 21-year-old, I was in a car accident that put me in a wheelchair that took my brother best friend brother and the only other survivor from that he and I fell into a mine shaft 64 days later I survived he didn't and so there's a long answer to your question you know did I have a good mindset coming right out of this no I was crushed in every possible way I mean after losing Matt I'm still living at home with my parents it's only 64 days since my car accident and I was still on really heavy pain medicine that was prescribed to me that I was supposed to take but I started taking handfuls of it I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't trying to kill myself, but I didn't want to be alive. So I was like flirting with it, like being reckless, not like writing a letter. This is it. Right. But like, I'm going to take a handful. Like, see I don't what care, happens. right? Yeah. Okay. Now I'll take a little bit more and see what happens. So I started taking these pills and then I realized that if I drank straight heart alcohol with the pills, I would pass out at like four o'clock in the afternoon and I wouldn't wake up until like 11 a.m. the next day. So I just was alive less. That's how I coped for about a month. Exactly a month. It was December 18th. So I lost Steve on September 10th. I lost Matt on November 14th, 64 days later. And then I made it until December 18th of this, taking copious amounts of, like, narcotic level. Like, I'm not talking Advil, like, morphing pills. And you're doing this at home with your parents there? Yeah, they didn't know I was doing this, of course. And sneaking the alcohol and all that stuff. You know, I'm 21, but they didn't know what I was doing. And so I made it to then. And then December 18th was when... You know, I had my come to Jesus moment, literally, where I was sitting there and just fell apart and then just looked up and told Steve and Matt that, uh, you know, the struggle I was having is that I didn't lose them like in a war fighting for freedom or anything. It was two, two accidents. So I couldn't justify their loss. And so I just looked up to them and I said, you know, I'm going to tell your story the rest of my life. You only had 21 years here, but you're going to live through me forever. And I committed to them. I would do one with my life, push further, go farther. You know, I was going to be a little firefighter and have my little city that I got to help. I'm going to go change the world now. And I made that commitment to them on December 18th, stopped taking the pills, stopped drinking alcohol for two straight years. And now again, you know, 13 years later, I drink in moderation, but never like I was in that month. And that's when that mind shift happened. So long answer to your question, but September 10th and then on November 14th, losing Steve and Matt, it took until December 18th to make a decision. And then it took a very long time to do something about it, right? Because Tony Robbins talks about this change happens in an instant. You make a decision, it's done. And then it took me again. I was still on crutches. So it took me a long time to do something about it. But the instant when the mind shift happened, and that's a really powerful point, you know, for your listeners to think about, you know, how hard is it to quit smoking? Well, it's in an instant that you quit. What comes next is the hard part. It's stopping a habit and creating new habits. And so... In that instant, I was done feeling sorry for myself. I was done drinking and taking pills and yelling at God for my problems and for Steve and Matt. In that instant, I decided. And then it was a very long emotional and physical recovery that followed. That's part of or probably the genesis of where the motivation came from to what I'm creating and working on today. So in that moment when you you know, said, I'm going to change the world, I'm 
not going to let this affect me. I'm going to amplify their voice from here on out. Did you know what you were going to start or get into? Did you have a business at that time? And how did, I guess, how did you get into that first business? Yeah. So no, I had no business at that time. Again, I'm two months out of firefighting or th- yeah. at December, I'm three months out of firefighting. And so I didn't really know what I was going to do. I decided to start a nonprofit that next January in honor of Stephen Matt. And Matt had a huge tattoo on his back that said living the dream that Steve and I said that we were all going to go get so that we'd all have matching. Matt got it first. Steve and I were going to get it. That never happened. So I named my nonprofit Living the Dream Global. And that was my first step in honor of them. And then I realized pretty quickly that nonprofits are non-profitable sure. <laughs> and that it takes money. And I saw that, you know, probably the number one function of most nonprofits is fundraising. And I said, well, all the effort it's going to take to raise funds, I might as well just make money. Right. Like sure. how, how hard you have to work as a nonprofit to create galas and all these things to yeah. attract the money. You might as well just build a business. So I built businesses to fund my nonprofit, which is where I came up with the four purpose business concept that, you know, caught fire and would eventually turn into thrive. So that probably will be something we talk about in a bit, but yeah, it's, so the first move was I'm going to do a nonprofit in honor of them, name it after what was important to us. And then realized I needed to make money or raise money. And I said, instead of raising money, I'll just learn how to make money. Did you get that nonprofit actually going? Like, is it still going today? Yeah, yeah. It's still going to this day. And its function is I fight for essentially what I believe are human rights, not civil rights like voting and same-sex marriages, not civil rights, but human rights like water, water, shelter, exactly, food, water, shelter, and freedom. Because people think that you know, good old Abraham Lincoln ended slavery, but there are, and good, I'm not taking away from his work, but there are actually more human slaves today than there have ever been in the history of the world. And so, you know, I should say that more carefully. Obviously what Abe Lincoln did back in the day was, was profound and changed the culture here in America. But yeah, so, so I work with women and children who are victims of human trafficking, of setting them free. And then, yeah, we have clean water projects all over the continent of Africa. I have an orphanage in Mexico. We were just in my garage 30 minutes ago, and I was showing you all the stuff that we're taking down there. So I have an orphanage down there. We build houses for homeless people. My wife and I have built 37 houses for homeless families. And then I partner with Pencils of Promise to build schools. I believe that education is right as well. So food, water, shelter, freedom, education. It's Somebody who, you know, whoever you are listening to this right now, you're at the gym working out or you're driving to work and you have the ability of hearing something we recorded on a golf course. (laughs) There are people in parts of the modern world today that have zero access to any type of information or education of any sort at all. No electricity, no podcast, none of that, and not even a local school. So I'm a, I'm a fan of that as well. So anyway, that's it. And then my, my businesses are the machine that give those things the money they need to, to exist. So what was the first for profit business you started? My real estate business that buys, fixes, and flips houses. I approached my father. This was at 22 years old. So the accident was in September. The next March, I became a realtor. I decided, hey, I need to figure out a way to pay my bills while I'm rehabbing. And then once I immersed myself in the world of real estate, realized, hey, being a realtor is great, but being a real estate investor, I have more control and I can make more money. And so decided to do that. Turned 22 in April. And then started our business in June of that year. So June 2005, 
was my first business where I actually had like articles of incorporation where I actually like had an EIN number and paid taxes, you know, <laughs> sure. where, cause I had some other side hustles in high school. I started like to a, do that then. a yeah. clothing company in high <laughs> school. Mistletoe. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I didn't claim, hopefully <laughs> they, they can't, <laughs> no, they can only go back seven years. So the IRS can be listening to this. You're Sorry. Good. Sucks for you. That was like 1993. So you missed it. But so yeah, I started that real estate business and you know, it's 12 years. I still own the same company and have started others, but that's the first business where my father and I decided to start allocating, you know, outside of, you know, I've, I grew up in the church. I have a religious belief and, and I tithe that individually. And, but publicly our businesses are for purpose. And so, you know, sometimes people are conflicted with that. Like who come up with a similar belief system and background that I had that, Hey Cole, aren't you supposed to give privately? And the answer is absolutely yes. With, with my personal salary that I pay myself and my own income. Yes. My wife and I do things privately. My businesses publicly give back kind of like a Tom's shoes where, you know, Blake Mikowski, the founder of Tom's who's worth over 300 million, I'm sure very privately makes his own donations in his own way. But Tom's as a business publicly gives shoes away. And so for anyone who's hearing this for purpose concept and wondering what it looks like, you know, we can dive into that. But if you were raised in the same values I was, where you're not supposed to just do stuff to try to look good, you know, that's what you can continue to do privately if you choose to. What you're publicly doing with your businesses is is changing the world. And so, so that was it. Nice. So what made you want to start in real estate? And obviously, you, you probably looked at a lot of different things you could start, and that was just one of the routes. <laughs> Actually not. No. no. It was what my parents' next-door neighbors were doing. <laughs> True story. <laughs> to, to learn how to walk again, I had Sometimes to walk every simplest. day. Yeah, yeah. To learn how to walk again, I had to walk every day, and so I would make circles in my parents' cul-de-sac to get my legs working again. And the next-door neighbors were out one day, and you know they drove BMWs and Lexuses and lived in a big, beautiful house. You know My, my parents had done well for themselves, too, so the home was worth about a million bucks. So I was like, what do you do? He said, real estate. He said, you know, I'm a real estate broker. My wife's a real estate agent. So I said, cool, I'll go be a real estate agent. (laughs) I'll go do that. I see the proof that it works. (laughs) You can't fake it. You're my parents' next door neighbors. So I went out there, got my real estate license. So it was literally that simple. And then realized, you know, along the way that I enjoyed the industry. And I think that's part of, you know, how people who may be wondering, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I know I'm called to being an entrepreneur. What should I do? So it just starts with taking action. The analogy I use is driving a car. If you are at a red light, you can turn your car all the way to the left, the the steering wheel all the way to the left, all the way to the right, leave it straight, and it doesn't change the direction you're going. It takes rolling for the steering wheel to make any difference. And so what I always tell people is to be an entrepreneur, you just need to pick something and start going. And you'll fall into something you like or you'll do something you don't like. So I got lucky that real estate was my first business. I still own that company to this day and have enjoyed it. But at the exact same time, there are businesses I've started along the way that were miserable, that I hated, that failed, talk about failing on, and that I shut down. And so I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't moving forward. And it didn't necessarily have to happen in that order that I happened to get the first business correct. I could have hated real estate. And then what defines you as an entrepreneur is do you try something new or do you go back to getting a job? And so, you know, that was it for me. Literally, the next door neighbors were real estate people. I said, cool, I'll do that. I enjoy the industry. It makes great money. I've done a lot of stuff I hate, but that's that's What it. was the biggest struggle in getting the real estate business started up? Is obviously you had your dad, right? Right. So he had did he have any experience or No. So my dad was in the real estate industry, but he worked in a corporate office for a company that did construction. So he was not a real estate investor. He did have money, but he would not give me any. So this <laughs> sure. was my business model. I took my, my dad out to lunch and I said, Dad, I'm gonna be a real estate investor. He said, Right on. And I said, I've got the best business model you've ever heard in your life. He said, Let's hear it. 
And I said, I have all the time. You have all the money. Let's do this. <laughs> like that's the best business plan you've ever heard. And the first lesson of being an entrepreneur he taught me is that there's no such thing as handouts. And I'm glad he did. And he said, listen, man, I'll go all in with you. I'll do this business around my current job. And if it does well enough, quit my job and commit to being your partner. But I'm not just going to hand you a check. So we had to go out there and raise the money. And we actually met a guy at church who was a real estate attorney who was doing very well and understood real estate. And so he was a complete stranger, you know, other than I knew him from church, took him out to lunch and raised money and said, hey, dude, we'll do all the work. You put all the money and we'll split the profits. And he said, I'm in. And so that's where the business began. So I would say the biggest struggles for me as a 21-year-old was belief because I was buying and selling houses from 50 and 60-year-olds at 21. What I learned pretty quickly for anybody who's listening to this who's younger is that age is totally irrelevant. Knowledge is what matters. And so, sure, when I'd walk into a room, you know, some eyebrows would go up, maybe like a, a judgmental look. But then as soon as I knew more than the realtors did or whatever, because I matter. really yeah. dove deep in learning, nobody cared how old I was anymore. You know, like I want to buy your house. It's like this guy. But then when I show them I had the proof of funds, the money's available. And after two minutes of conversation that I knew what I was doing, nobody cared how old I was anymore. So I would say that that was probably the hardest part. Do you have any just deals like early on that just you lost a lot of money on there or that just went terribly? Not early on, but yeah. So I learned the hard way to not have all your marbles in one basket. And in 2008, when the recession came here in America and real estate collapsed and 100% of my money and income was in real estate, I took a beating and we ended up losing 170,000 cash on one deal, which was all the money we had. So, you know, we did well in 2005, six and most of 2007 because real estate was booming. Everyone was making money. 2007, things like went off a cliff. It didn't taper down. The economy was just <laughs> done. Like my dad and I were making money hand over fist and it was over. It was done. So we were slowly hemorrhaging, right? We were trying our hardest to stay profitable, but we were burning, you know, we were, we were making 70 to 90% of our expenses. So we were working seven days a week to not be able to pay all our bills, only about 70 to 90% of them. So every single 30 days, I had less money than I started with, and I had worked solid those 30 days. So I was like, this freaking sucks. And so we swung for the fences and put a ton of money in this commercial deal that this investor who was a stranger approached us and said, hey, I got this opportunity for you guys to get rich quick. And that should have been all we needed to hear to run. But we were like, oh, <laughs> yeah, right. get rich quick sounds better than never. What would you have in mind? <laughs> and we gave this guy 170000 cash. Long story short, he went to prison and all our money was gone. So that was a soul-crushing loss because that was at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. The recession was in full force. We had no money left. It was all gone and our business wasn't profitable. I've got a terrifyingly similar story in terms of, it wasn't 170K, but it was 60K we gave to a guy and he's now in jail because uh, yeah. he, he did the same to a bunch of other people. But Was it real estate? wasn't real estate. Oh. It was actually like he proposed that he needed capital for this daily deal site. Showed us bank accounts, showed us right, right. so much forged stuff. We actually flew to Dallas, Texas to meet this guy. No show. He's texting us. He's like, I actually got pulled out by TSA for holding a gun, but I'm licensed to carry it. So it's their mistake. Never heard, never heard from the guy again. Wow. Brutal lesson learned. Yeah. No kidding. Geez. Well, that's, there's a fail on, right? Yeah, exactly. We've got plenty so, okay, so real estate was going well. What, well, went well, went bad yeah, in 2008. Bad. Did you stay the course and keep doing real estate from 2008 on or did yeah. you? No, we did. We grinded it out and, you know, started some other things, but just crazy circumstances. We're able to get onto the radio. We had our own radio show six days a week for an hour. 
we moved our business. We still lived here, but we moved our business to Columbus, Ohio, where we were buying and selling houses out there for as much as a down payment is in California. So I'd get on my radio show here in Southern California, and people would hear that they could buy a $140,000 house that's been completely renovated and has a tenant in there paying rent, and they're used to putting $200,000 down and then having a $600,000 mortgage here. So we were able to literally scrape by for about the next year and a half, and then in February of 2010, I quit my business. Even though firefighting was in my rearview mirror at that point, I'm a reservist on a nonprofit that sends emergency responders to any catastrophe, natural or man-made, like a 9-11 would be man-made. And I got sent to Haiti at the earthquake. So the earthquake happened in January 2010. For those who remember that, it was global news. And so I flew right out there to do search and rescue with my firefighter background. And, you know, we, we set up a hospital and I was doing, you know, surgery next to us. I mean, there was so much need and so many critically wounded that things that are very illegal for a firefighter to do in America, like ever touch a scalpel. I was literally doing surgeries, nothing major, but like topical type surgeries of people that had debris embedded in their skin. Like I'll keep the, for, <laughs> yeah, don't need I'll, to get too yeah, deep into I'll, this. I'll keep it. I'll keep it simple, but working elbow to elbow with an actual ER surgeon. So somebody who in America is board certified doing surgery saying, you know, Cole, do this, do this, do this. I had to learn how to give stitches. And so after spending some time over in Haiti, I came back and in February of 2010 just reprioritized and said, you know what, Dad, I'm over this. Like, this is my whole life. We have to work seven days a week to Trish, just pay our bills. The radio show was 60 grand a month just to be on the air. I'm not Ryan Seacrest. I'm paid to be on the air. <laughs> so at how hard I had to work just to pay bills and then having that reality check of watching the worst thing I've ever seen. And, you know, I'm on search and rescue. And as you're moving debris and finding people, most hadn't survived. So you can imagine what I was seeing all day long. And I just, I came home and I broke and I was like, I'm done. And then the girlfriend I was dating broke up with me, which sucks, on Cinco de Mayo, which is so un-American <laughs> to dump me on a Mexican holiday. <laughs> and then so June 1st, I moved to Mexico. I said, screw it. I quit my business in February. My girlfriend broke up with me three weeks ago. I'm out. And I moved down to Mexico and I worked full time with a nonprofit down there. And I said, I'll never do business again. I'm just going to work for a nonprofit to continue to do the mission I promised Steve and Matt I would. And instead of it being my nonprofit and me having to make all this money, I'm just going to work for a nonprofit and change the world. And then that's when my life changed forever. Came back to America in January, seven months later. That girlfriend that dumped me, I asked her to marry me. She said yes, and now she's my wife. <laughs> Give me some knuckles on that. So, yes, I didn't know if she had a boyfriend or not. I hadn't talked to her since May, but I was like, hey, my bad. Will you marry me? And she said yes. And then restarted my businesses again in the first quarter of 2011 and have had insane success ever since. <laughs> a few ways I want to go with this. So let's just talk about your wife. How, how did <laughs> how did you flip the tables there? So I made a survivor decision, which was unhealthy. After losing Steve and Matt, I said I would never let someone matter to me again. I got my mom and my dad and my sisters and my aunts and uncles. And co- but there would no, never be anyone else I would let in that space because there's some other. I lost some other people too. That wasn't just Steve and Matt. There are some other stories similar. And so I met this beautiful, amazing woman who I loved being around and I was very transparent from day one. Like I will never marry you. And she's like, yeah, well this is our first date. That's a little yeah. awkward. And I was like, just letting you know, this is going nowhere, but I'll love to have some good dinners with you. And fast forward two years, she dropped the L bomb for the first time ever. She's like, I've fallen in love with you. I know that you never said you'd marry me. Has your mind changed on that at all? I was like, no, actually. Did she drop the L bomb first? Yeah, she did. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm trying to give you the cliff notes, but it was, it was one of the most, I don't know, profound moments in my life where I'm sitting in her car and she says, hey, I don't need a proposal. You do not need to want to marry me. 
but I just need to know if you'll marry anybody. Because here I, you know, here I am spending the last two years of my life. I'm, I'm 24 now, so I'm not old, but I certainly, you know, my clock is ticking. What are your thoughts in the future? And I said, I won't marry you or anyone else. It's not about you. I just won't let someone matter to me that much. And then she said, well, what sucks about that is I've fallen in love with you. And so if you can't love me the way that I deserve to be loved, you can't have me. Get out. Good for her, though. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so so that sucked. Yeah, you know, of course. Hopefully no one listening to this is laughing right now. That's the worst <laughs> moment of my life. But going and sitting in Mexico, completely cut myself from America. I turned my cell phone off. I called AT&T and said, suspend my account and went into a black hole, like out into the wilderness for seven months, right? And it created perspective. One of the reasons I married my wife is I said, you know what? Here's a woman. Because she did not want to break up with me. You know, she was crying when she did it. She, she loves was, you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, I'm in love with you. And I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And if you won't do that for me, then I have to end this now before I fall deeper in love with you. Broke her own heart. And I was like, you know what? She was so in alignment with her integrity and her belief system and wouldn't bend. That's the type of woman and that's the type of strength of character I want to have for the rest of my life. So. Anybody who's listening to this who's in one of those awkward relationships, maybe try getting <laughs> dumped because it worked for me. So that was one of the things that, that made me fall over there. So while I was down in Mexico, finally healing from Steve and Matt, I got to the point of being able to live life, but never really dealt with it. Um, and then some of the other things that happened and just my businesses and stuff, getting away for seven months and just doing philanthropy and making it not about me is how I found healing. It's the weirdest thing ever because my mom is a therapist. So guess what happened after Steve and Matt passed? She made me go to therapy and not to knock her profession. I was able to cope. I went from absolute depression, popping pills to doing well in life, to starting those businesses and having in my early twenties, insane success. You know, I wasn't making seven figures a year, but on occasion, six figure months, I was high six figures at 22, 23. That's almost unheard of. So the therapy worked, but there was just this chip on my shoulder where I said, I've never loved anyone again. And going down to Mexico and having no one work on me, but me building houses for homeless families. And then that's when I founded my orphanage was that seven months I lived down there that I still have to this day, taking care of 23 orphans and feeding and caring for the homeless all of a sudden my problems weren't as big as I thought they were. And there wasn't a moment, there wasn't a conversation, there wasn't a movie. It was just layers of an onion until finally by January, seven months later, I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to come back to America, start my life again, start my businesses again. And if she'll take me, start that relationship again. And we didn't need to date. We'd already dated two years. And I explained that my proposal. I was like, hey, listen, I'm in love with you too. And I knew it, but I wouldn't admit it. But now I know it. And so assuming you don't have a boyfriend, will you, will you marry me? And she said, yes, that was in March, which actually is funny. It was two days ago. So oh, nice. as of recording this podcast, the six-year anniversary of me proposing to her was two days ago. And we got married that next September. So my six-year wedding anniversary is this September. That's awesome, man. Congrats. Yeah. So that's the story of that. And, you know, there's a lot of not so much entrepreneurial lessons in there, but as far as what really matters, you know, because you can be an entrepreneur and make a lot of money, but miserable in your relationship. So, well, I mean, that's a perfect segue actually to, to kind of jumping into Thrive, right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Thrive and what made you want to start it, when it started and what it's up to. So back to 20 minutes ago in this conversation, talking about that for purpose business model where I said, man, I want to have a nonprofit, but instead of fundraising and knocking on people's doors to just donate, I'm going to do something where people just pay me money and then obviously use that to fund this initiative. As I started getting on podcasts like this and 
you know, I never really tried to build a brand and still need to focus more on that probably even now. Re would not be happy with that yeah, comment. Yeah, well, that's why I hired Re, right. <laughs> so at this point in my career, we're talking... By the way, we're talking about our our mutual friend, Re Perez, who owns Branding for the People. Yeah, he's fantastic. My wife wants to adopt him, if, <laughs> even though he is... Uh, 45 or 45. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's 45 and doesn't need parents. He has two of his own. My wife literally wants to adopt Re. So now, this is 2011. I didn't have a brand and didn't care, right? And so... When I would get in around people like Re, they'd be like, dude, what you're doing is really cool. Like, you should get on so-and-so's podcast. And I'm like, well, what's that? And so just as I built my entrepreneurial network, the world of podcasting was introduced to me because people wanted me as guests on their show. You know, at this point, I was making millions of dollars and giving a ton away. And people found that fascinating. So I talked about it. And then that evolved into people writing some articles on like Inc. and HuffPost and Entrepreneur.com and stuff. And then there was clearly an audience who was thirsty for having purpose in their business of not finding purpose, which is what everybody says they help you do, but behind the effort of their work and their companies having a purpose. And I was getting bombarded through people through social media and et cetera saying, how do you start a business like that? How do I do that? How do I do that? So then hired Re said, Hey man, I need to turn this into something. And out of uh, an 11 hour all day VIP <laughs> branding session with Re, we created these four quadrants where what I was doing of combining business and purpose, we created a quadrant called the thriving quadrant, right? There's the there's the earning quadrant, the surviving quadrant, the giving quadrant, and then the thriving quadrant. And that was the the result of 11 hours together. And I said, I'm going to create an event that shows people how to get in that quadrant where they're set financially so they can focus on making a difference. And since we called it the thriving quadrant, we named the event thrive. And so what thrive is, is a three day conference of the biggest names in entrepreneur. I mean, we're talking Gary Vaynerchuk, Robert Hershevek. Last year we had Grant Cardone, Jack Canfield, author of chicken soup of the soul, John Astroff, like just freaking the biggest gangsters out there that come together for three days to teach our audience how to just kick butt in their business. And then some of the other speakers, myself and Adam Brown and a few others, we teach them how to then create what's called a for-purpose business. So not just touchy-feely, you know, about 70% is is strategy content. Like when you leave this event, go home and do this, 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 and this. It's not just, hey, now you're real motivated and go figure it out. It's literally the step-by-step process. The other 30% is, cool, now that you know how to make millions of dollars, no one's going to care how big your house is or how many cars you own. Go out into the world and make it a better place, and here's how to do that with the for-purpose aspects. About 70-30. And we've done it twice. We're about to have our third one this fall. And what's really cool, if, uh, if I can brag about what that event has done, is, is <laughs> you know, attendees who are contributors to different publications like Entrepreneur and Huffington and stuff, they come and they write their honest reviews. And people are saying it's the best conference they've ever been to in their entire lives. It got rated as an Inc. magazine, the top seven must-attend conferences of 2017. So something's right. And awesome two years in, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, by our second event to be coined, you know, by the attendees, the best they've ever been to, number one. And then number two, having third parties say it's the must-attend event. And, you know, I'm the person that's the glue that's holding it all together. But I got to give credit to my wife, who is just the only reason Thrive happens. I wouldn't be able to do it without her as far as her organizational. I suck at organization. She's a ninja at that. And then obviously the amazing speakers and then really the people. When we're very clear in our messaging that if you're just about getting rich to buy Ferraris, don't come. You know, our event might be three times larger if we weren't very clear. Like, hey, listen, if you're just here to get rich and just freaking buy crap, you are not going to fit into this culture. Don't come. So what we end up with is this this amazing audience. And people are like, listen, I'm not here to give all my money away, but I'm here to when I look over my shoulder, see record-breaking quarters in profits and record-breaking quarters in social impact. 
And when you fill a room of people who have been filtered, so to speak, through our marketing, that they're all there to do well financially, not just be a bunch of martyrs that work and give it all away, but to do well financially and to learn how to do the best they possibly can in their niche industry with their skill sets, but then simultaneously figure out a way to weave within their business model, making the world a better place. The speakers are amazing and the attendees are amazing. The number one most positive feedback I get from Thrive is the attendees were awesome and they're the best of any conference I've ever been to. So I get a lot of credit for how amazing Thrive is, but I'm backstage the whole time really having nothing to do with it. It's the amazing content coming from stage and the amazing attendees that show up. I just got them to come. And it's cool because, yeah, like you said, you're, I was at this last one. Actually, you caught me a ticket. I'm still trying to pay you for it. <laughs> no, so, don't worry about that. No, <laughs> no, but it was cool because your whole family was there. You had your wife there. Your, yeah. you know, your kids were there, even your parents. So it was just cool seeing it be a family effort. It's very normal. People who get close to me see that we are really a family dynamic in every capacity in our businesses and in life. And, you know, people think it's weird. My, my dad was my best man in my wedding. He was there at 64 years old at my bachelor party in <laughs> Vegas in like Pure, which is one of the biggest clubs, you know, in XS for any of you who are clubbers in Vegas. I'm not, but for the bachelor party, why not? And there's my 66-year-old, what now, was he like 64 at the time? He's 66 now. So was that 62? However long ago, five years was, 61 years old. Dad's just raging with us. So my family is involved in everything I do because it's, it's not some like ploy or, or marketing tactic I really do. Love them. Nice. And to kind of, we'll come back to Thrive. Are we looking for a beer yet? No, yeah, no. no I'm beer checking yet. my cell phone. She, <laughs> she hasn't responded. Oh, yes. We've got action. Hopefully it's not her saying there's no beer. No, yeah. She says she's going to look. Nice. But so what were you saying though? Yeah, no. Just to, so you've got Thrive going on and you obviously had Ty Lopez speak at yeah. this past Thrive and you guys started a business together. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. So for more context around Thrive, I don't make money off of it. I give all the money away. And that's another reason why people think I'm crazy is because most people to put on the effort, the tears, blood, and sweat that it takes to put on an event like Thrive, do it for the money. Do you mind going into actual numbers or do you want to keep uh, Yeah, so I put up just over $500,000 of my own money for the last two years. To put it on. Yeah, out of my own checking account. Yeah, I don't have investors. I don't raise money. I just write a check. Yep. And thank God that I'm, you know, I'm in the financial position to do that. And so... And you when charge what per ticket? Tickets, depending on if it's early bird or not, but they range anywhere from like $500 to $3,500. And so nothing's for sale at Thrive. No speakers allowed to sell anything. And that's a lot of times a conflict because they're like, I come here to sell stuff. Well, and I'm <laughs> like, course. cool, well, now you're going to have even more pure motives because you can't sell anything. You're coming here because you choose to. And we're still getting these amazing speakers to come. So what we do, again, at Thrive is it's not about money for me. And so what it is is, number one, it's a branding play. Because now a lot of people say, hey, I'm a professional speaker and I shared stages with Gary Vaynerchuk and I shared stages with Grant Cardone. Well, they came to my stage. So it's a, it's a great credibility and, and branding play, which makes Ree happy. Shout out to Ree. But then it's a great relationship builder. And so it's Ty Lopez specifically, I actually didn't know who he was. For Thrive One, we were doing ads with Robert Hershevik and Gary Vaynerchuk saying, come to Thrive, come see these guys. And in the comment section, a lot of people were saying, get Ty Lopez, get Ty Lopez. So it's a picture of Gary Vaynerchuk saying, hey, come see Gary speak at Thrive. Buy your tickets, click here. And in the comments, get Ty Lopez, get Ty Lopez. So I'm like, who is this freaking Ty Lopez guy? So I Googled him and I was like, oh, he's the garage that guy. guy. Yeah, Because yeah. I'd seen that come up every single time I watch a car video on YouTube, right? So I was like, that's Ty Lopez, the car guy. So bottom line is we were one person removed. A mutual friend introduced us and I got to meet him. And I didn't know him outside of that you know, garage here in my garage video. And obviously that 
that video is kind of douchey, right? <laughs> which which well, is, it does its job, right? That's it. Like he talks about being polarizing, and like so, I don't say that to offend him. He's like, dude, that was all on purpose, and it worked, obviously. And so, so I didn't know who he was. I got to know him as a person. He was better. So he came and he spoke at Thrive One, as and Thrive Two, as a matter of fact. And so, so that's how I met him. And then he asked me since he spoke at Thrive for free, which all my speakers do. He said, you know, would you reciprocate and speak at my event in December? And I said, absolutely, yes. So I spoke at his event in December, and what he didn't know is that I've been on stage speaking professionally for over 3,000 hours. <laughs> he didn't realize that, yeah. Yeah, he had no idea. So I showed up to his event, blew it up, and was their number one rated speaker. You just know, just for context, how are you on stage that much? Because I don't think we talked about that. Yeah, no. So in my entrepreneurial career, I didn't you know, get to the position I'm at financially and success-wise on my own. I've, I've invested in coaching along the way. I invested in a guy named Than Merrill's coaching program. He owns a company called Fortune Builders still to this day, and they were the real deal. And taking what Than taught me and using it, you know, giving credit where credit's due, it, it's what changed my business. When I came back in 2011, people were like, all right, cool, you were broke. You came back in 2011 and went off to make millions of dollars. How? Because I literally bought Than's program and followed it, right? I mean, this doesn't mean it will work for everybody. I just did what he told me to do and worked my ass off. And so, obviously, I caught his attention. I'm like his poster boy, like, oh, hey, you're proof that this Just works. Just because you're crushing it. Yeah, exactly. You're the, te- you're the primary testimonial. Yeah, exactly. And there's not, I'm not the only one, man. Yeah, there are people yeah. that do way better than me, but he's like, sure. what do you think about teaching people, you know, what you're doing in your business? And I said, yeah, man, that sounds great. I love teaching. And then that evolved to, hey, what if you had your very own events where I fill rooms and you show up and for you teach the whole audience by yourself in lieu of me coming at all. And I said, yeah, let's do that. And so I've been doing it for him for about four and a half years now where I stand on stage three straight days. Yeah, we were just talking about this offline. Yeah, so Friday, grind. Saturday, and Sunday. So it's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It starts at 9 a.m. and ends at 6.30. We do take an hour lunch, but I clock 27 hours on stage Talking every single weekend. Pretty much nonstop. The whole time. And then I've done that <laughs> enough years now where when you add it up, plus other people's events like Ty's, I've literally been on stage for over 3,000 hours. So... You know, I haven't done as many individual talks as like a Gary V. Sure. But I guarantee you I've been on More stage. Hours. Yeah, exactly. So So that caught Ty's attention because you're a natural. Well, you're not a natural. You just ha- you put in the reps. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and, and I enjoyed it. So I, I went out there and I, I did well at his event. And so he's like, hey, dude, let's do something together. And, you know, just speaking straight up, I've told him this too. You know, Ty, Ty has such a large imprint through social media that there's a lot of negativity out there about Ty. And he used this actually at Thrive's stage. So I'll, I'll use this as an example. He said he got something like 200 million views last year in all of his channels. And so he said, let's say 1% of people hate me. That's 2 million people. <laughs> yeah. That's more than most people know anyone else is alive. Yeah, of course. And he's like, so yeah, you see a lot of crap about me online, but the 99% don't make as much noise. You know, when do people go and leave a review on Yelp when they're pissed, right? So so I bought into that and I was like, you know what, Ty, like I'm stoked speaking on your stages, but I don't know, you know. So then I got to know him a little bit better and I always judge people by who they surround themselves with. And I learned pretty quickly that if Ty was who some of his comments on YouTube channel who are just internet trolls, if there was any legitimacy to what they were talking about, he wouldn't have these amazing staff surrounding them. Ty's inner circle of his managers and executives are some of the most amazing people I've ever had a chance to spend time with. And so, you know, I learned pretty quickly it's just internet trolls being idiots, being jealous. And so I said, yeah, Ty, what'd you have in mind? He uh, said, we've got, some, we've got some serious action right now. Yeah, yeah, we've got some golfers right here. I don't want to mess up his, his swing. but uh, Literally 10 feet away from us in a sand trap. Let's see what happens. Yeah, don't hit me. 
Oh, Dang. he ripped it. Nice. Well done. Under, under pressure, too. Yeah, that was really This kid's probably 12 years old, and he just hit that ball out of sand farther than I've ever hit off a tee. But I'm not kidding. I was a little scared. I mean, like, literally, like, a little bit to the right, we would have gotten nailed. Good job, man. Nice hit. So, it's <laughs> <laughs> like we're at the PGA. So, it was about a, this 14-year-old kid. Oh, that was pretty impressive. I don't know if you're going to edit this or leave it in. No, but this I'm, is going to roll. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'm impressed with that. Uh, so anyway, that was a long answer to tie. So, yeah, but yeah. I'm trying to make it a lesson. So for anyone who's listening to this, you know, the internet sucks, man. People just, I don't know why, the people who are the least happy have the most to say. Uh, and this is no defense to tie. Let's let's forget tie at all and just talk about the, the concept that unhappy people like feel better about making unhappy comments. And so always do your due diligence. In this case, I was had some concerns working with Ty that weren't warranted. In your case, you trusted someone you shouldn't have. Yep. So the more, And that's why you lost money from a guy who was a no-show. And so the moral of the story becomes, do your due diligence. And so I spent about eight months going to Ty Lopez's personal house, spending time with his team. I ended up speaking for him two more times, flew to New York with Ty and his entire team. He flew 37 people out there to host an event for 700 people. Had he already approached you about a business at this point, or no, you're no, just no. getting uh, to know that's him? That's where he pitched me, was on the New York okay. event. So literally, in the green room behind stage, right when I got off stage, he's like, we're going to do a product together. Like, you know how to explain things in a great way. I have the audience. And that's when I was like, yeah. So that was in January of 2015. And again, you know, I hope my tone isn't that I was ever like skeptical of Ty. I was just doing my well, due diligence. I think it's right? okay. I think a lot of people were skeptical of Ty. So I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's a big deal. To yeah, be honest okay. with you. Yeah, that's a good point. And so that was in January. And then I spoke for, so I spoke for him in December. I spoke for him in January. I spoke for him again in March. And by that point they were trying to pay me. Like Maya, his right-hand woman is like, hey, dude, we got to compensate. And I was like, nope, I'm investing in relationships. You know, we'll figure that out another way, another day. And then Ty and I, again, through texts and stuff, were like, let's do something, let's do something. And uh, it was September 9th, 2016, when I remember it because it was the day before I lost Steve. No, no, because I lost Steve September 10th. Oh, got it, got it. So that's why I know exactly where I was when it was Ty because the next day was, was Steve's anniversary. So it was September 9th. 2016, the day before I'd lost Steve, or, you know, from 12 right. years earlier. Right. And I sat with him in his office, and he pitched me with his idea of, you know, let's do real estate, let's do your course, you obviously own this, you know, you're really doing it, you're not pretend like most people are. I've never done an info product in my life. He's like, I know how to film you, how to edit it, all this stuff. So you just do what's in your head on camera, and I'll get it out to the world. And I said, all right, screw it, let's do it, Richard Branson style. So I filmed it in late September, and it launched the week of Thrive. And we opened it up for only 20 days as a beta group. And that's it. To this day, we've only opened it up for, for 20 days as a beta group. And it's going to open again in April. So, How much did it sell? It sold $1.8 million in 20, 20 days. 20 days. Not so. Yeah, that's Ty Lopez. His freaking... I was listening to a podcast interview with Sam Ovens, who also, you know, is partners with Ty on another yep. business, yep. consulting business. And I think it was on Mixergy, Andrew Warner's podcast. And... Sam said that last year he did 18 million overall revenue mm-hmm. and that four to six million of that was purely based on Ty's list. Yeah. So the guy's just a monster on social. He is the, I think the only one that does what he does. You know, there are people with larger audiences like a Kylie Jenner. Yeah. And then she has like her makeup line that does tens of whatever, but no offense to her and her success. Like, she stepped into something. That was a layup. Yeah, exactly. Where like Ty grinded it out. So there's a lot to it. I guess it's back to that douchey video about <laughs> views. And it, like he, he talks about how, how any publicity is good publicity for people that are listening to this. And so like he had people make parodies where they were just making fun of him. 
that got millions of views. So people see these parodies of some poor guy named Ty Lopez getting made fun of. So then they go look up Ty Lopez, decide they like him and buy his product. And Ty used he this actually had people making those videos. Oh, dude, there are like thirty different I've seen, videos. I've seen a lot of, of them, but yeah, I didn't know yeah. he was actually like telling people. No, to no, do no, no, he didn't tell them. Oh, okay, they, see, no, see, they were doing that on their own. Got it, got it. Got and it. he uses the example of Donald Trump, regardless of people's political yeah. beliefs, of how because Donald was pissing people off, you know, Hillary was paying tens of millions of dollars a month to get talked about on TV, and for free, everyone was talking about Donald Trump. And so, you know, regardless of who you voted for and what your political beliefs are of, of listening to this conversation, ties like, you know, any publicity is good publicity. Donald Trump won the presidency and paid like one-tenth as much for ad spend as Hillary because everyone wanted to talk about him because they were so frustrated. And, you know, ties like all these people that made these parodies making fun of me put me in front of millions of people. Yeah, I mean... So I guess the lesson there is being polarizing. Yeah, exactly. So many people want to please people. And if you're trying to be a people pleaser and you're not standing for anything, then, you know, nobody's going to notice you. The most controversial figures in history are the ones that we talk about to today. You know, you've got Martin Luther King Jr., where, you know, fighting as a black man fighting for civil rights in the 1950s was so controversial, some jackass assassinated him. But, like, the people that stood against the status quo and the norm are the ones that get talked about and are the ones that become legends. So if you're trying to figure out how to be liked by everyone, no one's going to notice you. If you stand for something, you know, I, I imagine that Martin Luther King Jr. didn't wake up and say, how can I be hated by everybody? But he stood for something. He was, you know, relentless and he changed the world. And so the point is what Ty has done, what we saw Donald Trump do. And what I'm explaining is find out what your core values are, your core belief systems. Don't be afraid to be controversial or polarizing to a degree because you look at the most famous people in today's history, you know, Justin Bieber, the Kardashians, they're some of the most hated people simultaneously. But at the end of the day, they don't care. They make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And then if you're someone listening to this who would do good with that, cool. Yeah, it's like if you had 100 people, you'd rather have 50 people love you, 50 people hate you, rather than having 100 people say, meh. Yeah, that's, that's a good way yeah, of putting I think, it. I think Ty, would, <laughs> Ty is definitely on the... On the 50 love, 50 hate. Yeah. And so, yeah. So the whole point of that was back to the Thrive business model. You know, I don't do Thrive to make money, but one relationship alone was worth 1.8 million. And we're going to relaunch it here in a little bit. Are you able to disclose what that JV looks like split was? 50-50. It's 50-50. Yeah. Now, Ty pays his operational cost, so I didn't make 900 grand. And that was gross. Of course, people will refund and things like that. That doesn't matter. You could be selling anything in the world. People are going to refund. But yeah, we have a 50-50 partnership on that. And the gross sales before any operational costs were $1.8 million. Just to get some more context about the actual course and what it actually provides people, who is that course for? It's for beginner entrepreneurs who want to be real estate investors. It's the very beginner real estate investor course. And, you know, we're going to add on that. This was introductory. Let's just sure. tie and I getting beta. used to working with each other. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. It was a beta group. And it's literally just around the ins and outs of getting into real estate from the importance of asset protection from like entity structuring. Mm. A lot of people just want to flip a house in their name. The liability of that is just unspeakable. So I'm not an attorney. I'm not a, a, an accountant. <laughs> Make I don't that give, disclosure here. <laughs> exactly. I don't give legal advice, but I do say what people would consider doing, right? And all the way down to like how to raise money, you know, because I had to do that. People will say, well, Cole, it's easy for you. You've got all this money. Yeah. Well, what about when I was 21 in a wheelchair? I didn't have any money. I had to meet a stranger, take him out to lunch and say, hey, 
you put up all the money, I do all the work, and we split it. And that was literally how I created my career. So, so it's just telling people how to get started, and then we teach specifically the, of the basic fundamentals, yeah. and then the the niche within real estate I focus on in the course is wholesaling, which is active income. So, so we lay down the framework of what it looks like to be a real estate investor, and then I teach them how to make money through wholesaling. You know, we'll add stuff on that going forward, like rehabbing, commercial, and stuff down the line. It's a good foundation to just to start understanding more about real estate investing. Yep, and it's for. 18-year-old and it's for 68-year-olds. It's just for people who've decided, you know what, I'm ready to not just dabble in real estate, but actually do something about it. You know, that's that's it. So obviously you have a lot, you have a lot of good stuff going on. You still have the real estate. You're, are you still, you still doing fortune builders? Yeah. So I speak for them right now, very occasionally, you know, for a while there, I was going out two or three times a month because I freaking loved it. And it was within my purpose, you know, to be on stage. And I don't just teach real estate. I talk about for purpose business. I say, Hey guys, listen, go get rich in real estate, but make the world a better place. So it was a perfect extension for what it is I've put on this earth to do. But then now that I have kids and stuff like that, I don't like traveling. So I just spoke actually last weekend. So 40 hours ago from this moment I was on stage, but it's right here in Los Angeles. So I just drive up there. So, so when it's in the Southwest region or specifically to Southern California, I do it for Than when I'm available and then I'll travel every now and then, but you know, we'll see how long that continues. I'm enjoying it right now. And Than is amazing. There's nothing anyone in the world can have say bad about Than. The guy's just perfect. But you know, being like on the circuit of like speaking oh, every weekend is just not something I'm interested. In. Yeah. So with with your current body of work and everything you've built, if you had to look back and and just say like, man, I wouldn't be here had that not happened. What would it be? Well, we talked a lot about the accents. So I'd be a firefighter in Seattle, Washington, right now if that didn't happen. So that's that's a big part of it. You know, it's the recession. If real estate stayed easy, I, would have, I wouldn't have diversified. Thrive would have never happened. So, you know, I don't know that there's a singularity or a moment or a genesis of, I could say, you know what, that's the moment. But, you know, if I had to summarize it to what it was that allowed today to be possible, is that kind of the question? Like, what was the thing that put me to where I am today? Yeah. I would say, because there are so many individual events, the thing that would be the blanket statement that would be applicable for anyone listening would be mindset. Let me explain because that's so cliche, but it was that attitude that we talked about earlier where, you know, when I lost Stephen Matt, I was absolutely, I needed some time, but then I decided to not let it break me. I decided to let it make me. And I have that same attitude in business failures, right? The point of this podcast is fail on it. So when I lost Stephen Matt, I needed my time to mourn, but then I went out there, started a nonprofit. Now I'm changing the world. When I'm in a business and I lose $170,000, then that put a fire under my ass to make my money back. And so I did and have made in that city where I lost 170 grand, 10x that money back. And so I don't know that there's an event that got me where I am today, but the mindset that I've carried throughout my life that has served me well, that I was able to capitalize on these individual moments was the fact that when the failure happened or even like the car accident, that's certainly not a failure, but something catastrophic happened failure can be in that category, I decided to take what time I needed to get through that. Regroup. Yeah. No, you know, they say if you fall down, brush it off and get up. I get that. But sometimes brushing it off could take a moment or two. A second, yeah. And yeah, catch your breath and then get back up. So I would say what got me to where I am today is that I always got back up. And it's that when I would have accidents, I wouldn't let them mean, when I would say accidents like with Steve and Matt or failures in business, I wouldn't let it define me. I wouldn't let it mean anything about me personally. I would just say it's just part of life. What can I learn from this? You know, that's Warren Buffett's favorite saying is 
I can learn from every single person what to do or not to do. But no matter who I'm talking to, I can learn something. And I take that same mindset towards my life experiences, both good and bad of, okay, this sucked. What can I learn from this? Am I going to let this define me? Or am I going to be better than this and let this make me? Mm. So along that point, I don't remember who it was. I think it was one of the Google founders, Sergey Brenner, Larry Page. But when he would be interviewing somebody, I think early on in the days, and he knew he wasn't going to hire this person like five minutes into the interview. Mm-hmm. And it was a 30, he was scheduled for 30 minutes. He'd spend the next 25 minutes trying to learn something from them. Wow. So on that point, which is pretty cool, right? That is cool. I mean, it's not not cool for the person applying. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, but that's good. But if he's going to spend 30 minutes with that person, let's learn from let's Well, and learn I'll bet you them. that mindset didn't start in his first interview. I bet you he got to where he is, CEO of Google or whichever company that, or whoever the individual is you were talking about, because that's just a lifestyle. So Exactly. So, yeah, I had a lot of different events that I can point to as what got me here today, but the only common denominator around car accidents and losing 170 grand and starting businesses that never made money and all the things that I've gotten my butt kicked on is that I said, that sucked. What can I learn from it? Let's pick it back up. Let's keep going forward. What's failure mean to you? Failure is not getting back up, not starting again, right? Like if I would have lost $170,000. Exactly. There it is, quitting. If I would have lost hundred seventy grand and never done a deal again, that's failure. Yeah. Losing hundred seventy grand and then going off and making 10X because it pissed me off is not failure. So failure is quitting. That's a one-word answer. Thank you. <laughs> That'll do it. What's one directive or action item that you would give to somebody that maybe is in a corporate job, but they have a burning desire to do more. They know they have more potential than what they're offering right now, but they're not sure of what business to start or necessarily what action to take. What's one directive you would give them? So Facebook has a saying that says, I mean, I'm trying to think, it's, it's, it doesn't need to be perfect, just needs to start. What, what, do you know it? I don't know it's, that, no. I mean, I've seen it circulating the internet yeah, yeah. and I quote it so much and it's completely, I'm, I'm losing it right now. But there's a famous quote by Facebook. Ah, done is better than perfect. That's ah, it. Got it. Done is better than perfect. And so, so many people wait for the perfect opportunity. So many people wait to have that angels in the sky playing harps, sun coming down, beam of light right on, like this is the opportunity, <laughs> you know, rainbows and butterflies, right, and, and unicorns and lollipops, like this is it. And that's not really how entrepreneurship is, you know, to use the quote from Facebook, done is better than perfect. What they're saying is like, there's never perfect, just get it done. And so for someone who feels that they're called to more, they're sitting at a desk, at an office, at a job that maybe doesn't challenge them, they don't feel isn't in alignment with their purpose or whatever, just start. You don't have to wait for perfect. You don't have to wait for, there it is. Larry Page reached out to me via LinkedIn and asked me to co-found this business with him and he's going to give me a $6 million <laughs> advance tomorrow. And yep. what he wants me to do is my favorite thing to do in life. So it's not even going to feel like work and I'm going to get a driver and I'm going to get executive benefits. Perfect. Now I can get started. That moment has never come for anybody and isn't coming for you either. However, done being better than perfect, to quote Facebook, just get started. And so if they're completely blank, like I don't even know what industry I would be in, Cole, then I would start reading business books that aren't niche specific. Like, I thought you were going to say, buy my real estate course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shameless pug. Uh, <laughs> www. But no, for real, <laughs> what they should do is get into some business concepts and some business education that's not niche specific. Don't go to a marketing event. Don't go to a real estate event. Learn business. And then Mindset's start, the foundation, right? Sure. So like reading books like The E-Myth by Michael Gerber that isn't specific to any industry. It's how to run business, right? And then I would start dabbling. I, I, I hesitate on that word because then when does it end? And, and so I meet people who are professional dabblers. I literally speak on stages as we talked about where someone will be in my audience and say, I go to like 20 of these a year. 
Like, you go to 20 of these a year, what does your business look like? Oh, I haven't started yet. Well, how long have you been doing this? Well, for like 12 years. <laughs> it's like, so what are, what are you then? Do you, do you get paid to come to these events? So when I say dabble, be careful, right? But, you know, it might make sense to start reading some basic business books that don't go niche specific, that just talk about business concepts that a stock trader, a real estate investor, an online marketer, whatever can all benefit from. What are your interests, you know, and what do you feel that you're already naturally good at? If you're good at sales and a people person, real estate is a sales people person business. If you're not super people person and you're more introverted, then maybe digital online type marketing where you're not interacting face-to-face with people and you're an affiliate marketer or whatever might make something more sense. So, so I would say start, just go, don't wait for perfect. Just go stay general, but specific to business, but general in the sense it's not marketing or stocks or whatever, and then start figuring out what industries work well with your existing skill sets and then dabble briefly with them and then either close that door forever or start a business. Don't dabble for life. So in short, fail on. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, man. I got lucky with real estate, right? But we didn't talk about the 30 other businesses I've started that cost me money, cost me anxiety, cost me time, that burned and failed. So, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm some something special on this podcast where my first business I ever started has been profitable in the last 12 years. That was lucky. The others that I've started since, many have been freaking catastrophic. And so I just said, oh, that sucked. But I learned. And I know what I'm not going to do again. Exactly. Exactly. Who's had the most profound impact on your life? Business or personal? Either. For business, it'd be Thamel for sure. That's what we were talking about earlier. I came home from Mexico. I sold everything I left in my storage unit to buy my wife her wedding ring. I was the brokest I'd ever been in my adult life when I went into his course and said, screw it, maxed everything out I had to get in and went off to make millions of dollars. So business, by far the most profound impact has been Than. As far as life, this might sound cliche, but it's going to be my parents who have been in a relationship with each other for 49 years, oh, married amazing. married for 44. So they're high school sweethearts. And you commented 30 minutes ago on this podcast that it was really cool at Thrive to see my sister there, my brother-in-law there, my other sister, my other brother-in-law, my mom, my dad, my wife, her sister, her parents. And people, I hear that all the time, they're like, it's inspiring, cool, but it's so weird. Like, <laughs> like I don't know anyone else who, who goes everywhere and does everything with their family and that family dynamic that that I was raised with that it's blood is thicker than water has really served me well so for my personal life my biggest impact I'm going to say is my parents not because that's the cliche answer but because they are something special I'm one of the rare people I know who still have both parents married and not because they choose to for the sake of the kids they're gross they're like 60 year old grab my dad's grab my mom's butt like (laughs) knock it off dude like the your grandkids are watching yeah. and I want to throw up. So like they are very like in love. So yeah, honeymoon phase yeah, in love it's amazing. at 44 years of marriage and what they put into me and both my sisters is by far the greatest impact in my personal life. Mm, I love it. So big picture moving forward. What's on the horizon? What is your ultimate goal and vision with what you're doing with Thrive? And is there anything outside of Thrive that you're really excited about? Yeah, so Thrive is, right now, we're focusing on the event. We're going to have 1,000 people there this year, 600 last year, 400 the year before, and 1,000 maybe more. Let's let's see how that goes. But the idea with Thrive, big vision, is that right now, Thrive, the event, is like the pinnacle. It's what Thrive is. I want it to just be the meeting place. 
and then there's going to be some type of continued education included in it. It's not going to be charged so that people can continue to learn year-round. And I want it to be the epicenter of completely changing business and consumer behavior. If we have more and more companies like Tom's Shoes, like my businesses, where you have direct competitors, one, when you do business with them, will change the world. The other will make shareholders happy. I'm not knocking Wall Street, but when it comes to consumers having more options of doing business with for-purpose businesses, it's literally going to change consumer behavior. Right now, more and more and more businesses are popping up. Water.org just partnered with Stella, which is the only beer I drink now, because every single time you buy a Stella beer, you're providing clean water for someone in a third world country for 30 days. So it's like, cool, man. I, I you know, I'm, I'm a Corona fan. I like Mexican beer. I like Corona. I like Modelo. But I, for like the last six months, only drink Stella now because when I'm in the aisle at the grocery store, I can buy Corona, enjoy it, and make that you know manufacturer. It's great, it's great to see big businesses doing that. Totally. Or I can buy Stella and know that I just bought a 12-pack, so 12 people are drinking. So literally, I should just be a, a raging alcoholic now. <laughs> so I can, but, it's not for me. Yeah. It's not for me. It's for the kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, don't mind all these empty bottles. But so the point is, it's becoming more and more and more of a common trend, but nobody's the epicenter. But on that note, though, it's almost becoming a cliché. Like, oh, well, you that's know. for people that use it as like some gimmick. A yeah, gimmick, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's true. And, you know, we don't even have time to get into that. But people can sniff out true oh, intent. 100%. And yeah. people can, you know, sniff out people doing this as a gimmick. And so, if you're just wanting to get on the bandwagon, it won't work well for you. But if you believe in the mission and use your business as the vehicle, people can sense that. And so, so the point is more and more and more of these businesses are popping up because they just individually are deciding it's the right thing to do. What I want Thrive to be is the epicenter where that type of a business model is created and cultivated. And to start having four, five, six thousand attendees per year times 10 years, we're going to have 50, 60, 70,000, 100,000 businesses out in America and the world that are that for-purpose model. And at that point, whether it's beer, shoes like Tom's Shoes, airlines, you have options of for-purpose or not for-purpose. And so many people, because there's all this data is already out there, over 80%. There's like 16 different surveys I've seen out there, credible ones, where they interviewed consumers and said, hey, would you rather do business with someone that's making the world a better place or not? Over 80% said they would ditch their comfort, ditch their brand, ditch their what they've been buying forever, start shopping or buying from somebody totally new, knowing that there's a social aspect. So the proof's there. It's huge, yeah. Now we just need the business to get on board and I want Thrive to accelerate that process and to be the the hub to where people can come so that fast forward it literally changes consumer behaviors where you know I'm on the older end of a millennial whatever's after me yep. are even more tree huggerish than millennials are they want to drive Tesla because they don't want to pollute and they they don't even want driver's licenses they want Ubers to drive them in Teslas and, yep. and all that stuff so so once they get to the age of starting to spend money more amounts of money and start families I want them to literally be able to have an option of for-purpose for every product and service out there. You know, I need to go get a massage. My neck hurts. Oh, this is a for-purpose, you know, massage place, whatever, like Massage Envy. You know, this is a, this is a chain that gives 10% of their revenues to kids in Africa who don't have food. Whatever, I'm just saying. Sure, sure. And then well, what that's going to do year 10 through 20 is for these businesses who are the late adapters, the late majority to say, okay, we're losing market share because all these other companies out there that are adapting this for purpose business model are stealing our clients. We either need to adapt or become the next blockbuster video and be pushed out by Netflix. And so I literally want to put pressure on the current status quo of how businesses operate to create a social aspect or consumers just aren't going to buy from you anymore. So right now thrives the big picture. But that's because we're only in our third year. Fast forward to our 10th year, Thrive's just the hub that's creating this world global 
epidemic of businesses converting to for purpose because consumers aren't going to buy from you anymore. And that's the war path I'm on. And that's what the big picture vision is. I love it, man. That's a huge vision. And I give you all the props in the world on, on getting that started and still, still growing in year three. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go thousand people, maybe more. We'll see this year and then just take it from there. I would love to see Thrive be four or five, 6,000 person event. I was actually doing some of the prep for the show. I don't know if you've even looked at this, but you know, we're in the same mastermind talks group. So Jason always puts together, Jason Gaynard always puts together the, what's he call it? It's like a Rolodex almost Mm -hmm. of everybody's profiles. And one of, one of the things you said in there was you wanted in four years to have 4,000 attendees at Thrive. So right on point, man. Yeah, that's cool. I don't even remember writing that. But yeah, Jason Gaynard was actually going to be speaking this year at Thrive. So oh, is he? nobody knows that yet because the website's not live. So those of you that are hearing this, shh. But <laughs> yeah, Jason, he was at Thrive One. He just did like a, a five-question interview where we asked him like five questions and he just answered. I'm actually going to give him the mic this year and just let him run because, yeah, he's great. And I'm going to have him talk a lot about culture, that Mastermind Talks culture he's created. And it's important for people who are entrepreneurs to know how to decide what their culture is going to be and then how to cultivate it like he has. Yeah, his, you, know, you he's watch, done an amazing job. Not Peter Shea, Tony Shea, founder of yep. Zappos. You read his book, Delivering Happiness. His first business had such a toxic culture. He lost like 40 million bucks or something because he didn't maintain his retainer agreement. He sold the company. He's like, this company has become such a toxic place. I'm literally going to, I don't remember if it was 40 million or 10 million, but it was eight figures that he lost because he couldn't stay there anymore. And then he said, Zappos going to be different. They created a culture and then hired people that were culture fits. And so that's a great skill set to have. I think Jason does it well, and that's what he'll be talking about at Thrive. Totally. All right, my man. I want to respect your time. And the sun's going down a little bit. No more golfers on the course. So oh, they'll be here. They'll be here. We'll wrap it up. Thanks, man. You got a heart of gold. Appreciate the time. I'll see you next time. For sure, man. You can find Cole at ColeHatter.com, and you can also connect to Cole on Twitter. He's at ColeHatter on Twitter. That's at ColeHatter. If you're interested in learning more about Cole's live event, just go to AttendThrive.com. And as always, all the links and resources Cole and I discussed, including more information on his latest projects and events, can be found at the page created especially for this episode. You'll find it all at failon.com slash 004. And finally, as I'm creating this project with the simple goal of getting people to take action through embracing failure, if you could do one thing to support my mission, I would greatly appreciate it. If you'd just be so kind to rate and review the podcast, I'd be ever so grateful. This will actually help the podcast be visible to more people. If you feel it deserves a five-star rating and you leave a review, I'll be sure and mention you by name in an upcoming episode as a simple, small way to say thank you. To rate and review the podcast, just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.